0: So Money, episode 1286, Rodney Brooks, author of the new book, Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. That's the kind of things you talk about when, why are we here? Because whenever there was any accumulation of black wealth, it was taken away.
0: Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. December 1st, we're going to finish the year strong. And today's conversation focuses on the racial wealth gap, what we can do to support the current generation, and also save future generations. My guest is Rodney A. Brooks. He's a veteran newspaper journalist who's written about retirement and personal finance, as well as race, wealth, and health disparities. His work has appeared in U.S. News & World Report, The Washington Post, and USA Today. He has a book out now called Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap. Racism and discrimination have put us here, but this is how we can save future generations. Our conversation intersects money, race, health, literacy, and much more. Here's Rodney Brooks. Rodney A. Brooks, welcome to So Money. This is a a special day for the podcast, getting to connect with a fellow financial journalist. Okay, well, thank
1: you for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. You are a veteran newspaper journalist. You've written about retirement and personal finance racial wealth and health disparities for the better part of 30 years that uh, you recently retired and you've written for the, such major publications as U.S. News and World Report, Washington Post, USA Today. Uh, and now you're, uh, more of your focus has been turning to the racial wealth gap. And you have a book, Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap. What prompted you to write it?
1: The title of the book is, is Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap. Racism and Discrimination put us here, but this is how we can save future generations. I have been urged for many, many years because sort of towards the end of my career with USA Today, I started doing personal finance. And trusting thing is I I was an editor for 30 years at USA Today. So when I left USA Today and retired, then I became <laughs> then I became a writer again. So I was writing about personal finance and and people Kept urging me to do a book aimed specifically at African-Americans, a personal finance book, because African-Americans have so many unique financial problems. It just took me a long time to get around to writing it. (laughs)
0: Well, better late than never. And you know, you we were saying before we were recording that you, as someone who has been covering news and um, talking about stories at the intersection of money and race for a, for a while, this wasn't always a story that would have maybe gotten front page attention, uh, but now is. And what do you make of that? Yeah, I
1: feel like it's, it's better now than never. The George Floyd and other protests, the social justice protests, have us talking about. A lot of things that we weren't talking about. Now, you know, my hope is that, you know, a year later, that um, we won't forget about those protests and what bubbled to the top. The racial wealth gap got a lot more prominent. During that time. So I thought it was the perfect time to well uh, publish the book.
0: And, and the book, we will get into that. You know, fixing uh, the racial wealth gap, you have identified the problems as well as micro and macro fixes, but perhaps to help level set and everyone understanding how we got here. What do you see as being the leading forces for why we have this huge disparity today?
1: You know, I don't want to throw out a whole bunch of numbers, but just a couple. And and one of them is home ownership. You know, African-Americans' home ownership rate is, is about 43%, 44%. And that compares to about 73% for white Americans. The average wealth of a Black family is is $17,000 compared to 171000 for white families. And those two things just show how enormous this gap is. So I sort of start out talking about the history, how we got here, and part of it is whenever African Americans attained a certain amount of wealth or, you know, 1800s, early 1900s, it was taken away, stolen away. One of the things that came out um, that people were talking about a lot after the social justice protest was Tulsa and and Black Wall Street and how uh, white mobs just Burned down a very thriving Black community, but what what was sort of overlooked is those race riots happened all over the country, you know. And I and I did a story uh, for one magazine, and the editor and I and I said in Tulsa, Tulsa happened like dozens of times, and you know the editor uh, questioned me and said. Did you really did it really happen this many times, and I said, Well, I actually probably could have said hundreds of times, but but yes, and and then uh, you know, you named it was Philadelphia, it was New York, it wasn't just the South, but and, there was only
0: one movie made about the Tulsa, yeah, yeah. as far as Hollywood's concerned, as far as moviegoers are concerned, it was just that one time, right? Yes,
1: mm-hmm. you know, you're still hearing about these things, so there was the. Thing in in uh, California, it was a uh, turn of the century. A black couple owned a black resource, uh, resort at the beach. It was called Bruce's Beach. It was a place where black families could go and spend a day at the beach. And eventually, people uh, did not like that happening. So the county just took it away. I mean, <laughs> and only only this year did they return it to the descendants, but. That's the kind of things you talk about when, why are we here? Because whenever there was any accumulation of Black wealth, it was taken away.
0: I mean, so in a word, it's racism. And and we've had guests on this program talk about my friend Rachel Rogers, for example. She's a wealthy Black woman who bought a ranch and... uh, she says, you wouldn't believe it, but many of my neighbors are not happy to have me there. And they've been petitioning. And, you know, what are you? it's like you cannot believe it sometimes, but yet here we are. And so maybe we could talk about first these big problems and, and what, the, what the powers that be can do to help. I mean, certainly there are things that as individuals we can do, but this is a systemic problem. What are your proposals for how we can uh, fix this at a large scale?
1: Two or three of the biggest things that I talk about is baby bonds. They were originally proposed by a couple of economists, including uh, William Darity, who wrote From Here to Equality. and His, his book is basically about reparations. And um, actually, Senator Booker has introduced legislation. I don't know if it'll ever get anywhere. But basically, when somebody is born in America, they would get a bond, you know, sort of for lack of a better word, say a savings bond, and saves a $1,000. So $1,000 is is added every year until they're 18 or 21. So it's more weighted towards the lower income. So the lower income people would get more and the higher income children would get less. But by the time they turn 21, um, they would have this pool of money that's guaranteed to them that they can use for college tuition or down payment around, mm-hmm. um, on a new house. Um, and there's estimates that this could vastly reduce the racial wealth gap. Now, another one is reparations. Um, you know, there were surveys that made, that made it look like it actually might happen, um, during the social justice protests, but I doubt that we'll ever see, you know, we see we mm-hmm. see cities and counties uh, around the country passing bills, um, um, approving reparations, but they aren't really reparations, <laughs> you know. Reparations I think is a payment and there are different ways to pay it. Um, based on your heritage and and whether you can trace back to uh, slavery, uh, how you you identify yourselves. But Mm -hmm. um, again, the uh, reparations uh, paid to Black Americans would reduce the wealth gap dramatically.
0: Yes. And so while we wait for this legislation, I'm hopeful, but, you know, what can individuals do and not just the African-American community, but people like me and and others who want to be allies and support this, what can we do? Well, the
1: the third thing that's sort of related that might reduce the problem, the wealth gap, is increasing Black home ownership. Now, for any American, home ownership is a huge part of their wealth. So that's one of the big reasons for the wealth gap. And another is... uh, intergenerational wealth. I mean, Black families don't have the money to leave to their children and their grandchildren. So, inheritance wealth is very small when it comes to Black Americans versus white Americans. I think a big thing is financial literacy. And another state has approved requiring financial literacy for high school students. It's amazing what people don't know. Black Black families, uh, I don't know about your family, but... uh, you know, it's black families don't talk about finances around the dinner table. You know, I, I uh, went off to college not knowing very much about financial or even about opening a checking account, but but you sort of learn on your way. You know, I, I have in the book a great example of a uh, black businesswoman in uh, New York who her mother made her write out the checks for to pay the bills every week and Mm -hmm. she said i never asked for anything because i knew there was nothing left
0: (laughs) yes i know mothers who do that and that is not a bad technique i will say because it certainly uh makes it real for your children and uh, i agree with you i think it's it is a as you mentioned, prevalent in the black community, but I think a lot of, um, minorities, minority families, but even culturally as a, as a country, we don't talk about money. And that does start at home, uh, where it's considered taboo. It's considered, uh, impolite. It it is considered not something that children should have to worry about, but, uh, then of course we see the, the impact of that as adults. We're going a little bit all over the place, but I think that's okay because you're saying so many interesting things and I want to make sure I capture this to the extent that I can. But you know, you yourself, you mentioned you didn't have this financial literacy growing up, and yet you became somebody who was financially literate, who I was reading, you were educating uh, new employees uh, in the newsroom, like, you got to sign up for the 401k, this is it. And so what were some of the resources or people that you benefited from in terms of building wealth and having a, a better understanding of what it takes to build wealth?
1: I think for me, it was self-taught. And even I, as a financial journalist, I look back on my early days and say, "Okay, I should have done this and I wish I had done that. So that's why I thought it was so important to me to when we had a new employee come on to to sit them down and say, the first thing you need to do is sign up for the 401k. You know, and, I, and I did a, a virtual book launch, and, and several of the people that I had done that with or came on, and it was a virtual book launch, and they talked about how important that was to them. So financial literacy, I think you can have an impact on one person, and, and that could impact generations to come.
0: Where did you grow up, Rodney? And then how were those converse, money conversations like around you? What, were, there, what were, were the things that you overheard that were either good or bad that it all filters in, <laughs> whether we're really paying attention or not?
1: I grew up in Newark and Linden, New Jersey. That's northern New Jersey, so closer to New York. You know, my father died when I was 16. So, you know, I don't think my father and I ever sat down and talked about money. And you know, there was more when, as I grew older, with my mother. But you know, she was not sophisticated, and I I didn't know people in the community until I became a professional who could provide that kind of assistance. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons um, that Black Americans are so conservative uh, as investors. Black Americans don't invest in big numbers in the stock market. You know, one of the things is if you don't have a lot of money, you think of the stock market as risky. So you're gonna look for more conservative investments.
0: Right. It sort of perpetuates, right? It's like this right, cycle. Right. Yes. One of the things I'm I'm reading about is how this era of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, it's like the new gold rush and 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 I see a lot of um black investors getting in on this and, and teaching it to uh their, a community of fellow black investors and I just wonder. I mean, that, talk about risky. I, I wonder what your take on this is, and and whether that's really the best way to go forward with managing your money, especially if you don't have a four hundred one k, or if you're not investing in more tried and true investments.
1: Well, I think if you look closer, you're gonna you're gonna see that these are millennials. Um, these are young. Black investors who are jumping in. These are not. These are not the uh, older investors, and uh, and no, I you know, like I said, this is Black Americans are very uh, are very conservative, especially older. So they're not. Not only are they not going to understand it, but they are going to think that is like super risky. And no, I don't think it's the. I don't think it's the answer. I mean. I, I admire them for 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 putting uh, putting their foot in there and they put dipping their toes in there and learning it. But I think there's a, still a lot to learn about cryptocurrencies, and I, you know, so many financial people don't quite understand them yet. So, so no, I don't think that's the answer to mm. to the issues. I, I'm glad to see these young black investors, though, who are who are encouraged, you know, to, because they are not.
0: It's a gateway. Maybe it's a gateway into the world of investing. And along the way, you'll pick up some index funds and open up that 401k. Yeah, I get it. I I agree with you. You at some point pivoted in your career to cover money. What was that pivot like? Did you want to, like, what was sort of the, uh, the draw? I, I always find that it, you know financial journalists were we're not built like everybody else we have a <laughs> there's something unique about us what was it about this space that really drew you
1: um probably the uh, you know the tech bubble you know when everybody everybody uh, people made a lot of money yeah. people lost a lot of money I, you could go into a brokerage office and people would this was the. This was obviously the old days before they could do all this stuff on the internet. But they would sit in in the brokerage office and watch the stocks go by. Um, and um, but it was uh, CMBC became huge, and it it piqued a lot of people's interest. And uh, I sort of um, went from covering business news to more of a personal finance and and stock market. And at some point. I actually went to Georgetown to study financial planning, and I did get a certificate in financial planning. and And that was funny because USA Today has newspapers were starting to shrink, and and layoffs were starting. And uh, my older son called and said, "Dad, what's your plan B?" And mm-hmm. I had no plan B, <laughs> and I just felt funny. My my son is like saying, "Okay, you need to figure out something to do." So so my Choice was to go back to school and study financial planning, and from there, um, that was sort of the interest. I became, you know, I started uh, focusing more, and uh, that's where my uh, my teams of reporters were: stock market, personal finance, and uh, economics.
0: Were there stories that you wanted? to be told, but the t- but for whatever reason, there was pushback. I mean, like now we're talking more about the racial wealth gap. I don't think enough, but, but it's definitely um, more covered now than I think ever in my career. And I've been doing this for 20 years. And I just wonder the history of this from your end, like uh, why, I guess I know now why we're talking about it, but there were many reasons 30 years ago to talk about it too. And yet we didn't cover it as much. What's your take on that?
1: You know, there were books, but there weren't a lot of stories. And, you know, the stories that were out there, you you, you knew, for instance, there were health disparities. Uh, there was probably more about the health disparities. You know, um, Black Americans suffer more from... The, uh, the top 10 causes of death in the U.S., the white Americans. You know, when, when you started to see stories was was basically the when the housing market blew up. And then you started to see how many Black Americans were losing their wealth because they were losing their homes with the big housing recession. So that's when I think you started seeing the big... The big stories when the market crashed, and, and and then you saw how many unqualified people were receiving mortgages, and the housing bubble crashed, and uh, it has ever since that time, the percentage of Black Americans owning homes has decreased mm-hmm. to at to now it's, now it's at the point where it's the lowest since the nineteen sixties,
0: and yet. The housing market just keeps going up and up and up. It's it's becoming unreachable for average Americans. Uh, do you, are you hopeful that we're going to get to a place where housing can be something that can be a part of the American dream for all? Owning a home.
1: That's why I think the big picture policy has to come to help. Uh, we need some housing programs that are going to bring, you know, not just lower income Black Americans, but lower income Americans into uh, the housing market. They can be from city, city level, county level, state level, but such a huge part of our wealth is the housing wealth. And, and if you don't have that, you have nothing, you know, to, to pass on to your children.
0: What are some stories that you think have yet to be told or should be told or we should put more emphasis on to help with this movement? So we've talked about, you know, systemic changes. We talked about what individuals can do. The media can also be extremely helpful in informing the public and pushing for policy. What are are some things that I can be working on?
1: The one I think is not written about enough is Social Security. Such a huge number of Black Americans depend on Social Security for... think 38 percent of social uh, black Social Security recipients depend on it for 90 percent of their income or more. And one of the reasons is everything's so interrelated when it comes to this. But, but, you know, but one of the reasons is that uh, black Americans take it much earlier. They they take it before. Full retirement age, so their benefits are 30%, 40% lower. And once you do that, you, that you know, you're locking it in for life. Even waiting one year can make a difference. Uh, you can have arguments about Social Security, I'm sure you know, for, for a year, whether you take it early, because some people just say it's not going to be around. Mm. You know, the one thing, we can stop talking about that and scaring people into taking it early. But also, we have to think about Caregiving, And that's why I say everything's that's related, because so many black women especially end up as caregivers for their spouses, for their parents and for their siblings, that they have to leave the job market early. So that means they're contributing less to Social Security. Uh, and so they contribute. Not only are they contributing less, but they're retiring early. So they do that. So, so their benefits are greatly reduced. Now, now that's one of the things that right. you know I think we could do more about. And another one is you know I, I talked a little about the the uh, health mm-hmm. disparities because uh, you know one. One thing you know I learned about when I was doing a story on Alzheimer's is we're more we're a lot more likely to suffer from Alzheimer's than white Americans. And they don't know why. Medical evidence to show why they, they're there's speculation. So you have this you know, I talked about Social Security and people not having the money, so they are lower Social Security payments. But at the same time, as they get older, they have more health issues. You're, you're basically sick mm-hmm. and you don't have when you're least likely to be able to afford to take care of yourself.
0: Right. And you're not working. Right. Uh, so you're missing out and you're maybe not 65 yet to get you know, Medicare. What I'm hearing from you is that the racial wealth gap closing this is not just addressing the financial issues, but also health issues, housing issues, basically providing more resources, affordable resources, affordable entry to these infrastructures to help us be able to Focus on making the money and and enjoying our careers and building wealth. It's what life should be for. And, And I know it's a long road, but we so appreciate your commitment to this and your new book, Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap, Racism and Discrimination. Rodney, thank you so much. Thank you for having me learn more about Mr. Brooks, visit rodneyabrooks.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Station for Friday's Ask Farnoosh. I'll be answering your money questions. Not too late to get those in. Just send me a direct message on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi, or you can send me an email, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. I hope your day is so money.